Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I head up to Tunmun to take a look at the Castle Peak Dragon Kiln, which was built around 1940, but uses centuries-old technology developed in Shewan in Guangdong. The kiln was last fired in 1985 and would have been an impressive sight. The kiln filled to the roof with sagars, pots that were used to contain other clay items to be fired and glazed. The kiln is more than 20 metres long and the kiln foreman had to get the temperature exactly right from this wood-fired kiln as there was a lot financially at stake. A kiln company could go broke if the temperature was wrong and the products ruined. The temperature of the kiln could be up to 1,300 degrees Celsius. Lung Sam was the original foreman and then owner of the kiln. His son, Lung Pak Chen, still acts as a guardian of the site while selling clay to keen potters here. He and potters, educators and historians want to save the kiln and a nearby deserted school to turn both into a living museum. Among those looking to save the site from possibly being turned into housing is Liz Lau, who's the owner of Lump Studio, a ceramic workshop in Wong Chuk Hang. She's also the vice chairwoman of the Hong Kong Dragon Kiln Concern Group. There's also sculptor Louis Lo Sai Kung, who, as a young man, came and used the kiln to fire up his creations for 10 years. Louis and Liz showed me inside the kiln. Actually, here is the front or the first opening for loading the kiln. And you see this way is where all the wood was loaded and fired. And the heat come all the way long from here up to the upper part of the kiln. So we're in the and first chamber of the kiln. First chamber, yeah. And the first chamber usually is the highest temperature. The upper part at the lower temperature because the air drains a lot over there and cool down. When I used to fire, I put it in the first chamber because it's the highest temperature and where most of the beautiful glaze can be made. And also this chamber is an area where the reduction atmosphere was created. Reduction atmosphere helped to bring beautiful color glaze. And up there is oxidation. You won't get the beautiful glaze. It's interesting because we're standing here or we're half crouching on a slope. So behind that grid there is where they would have stacked up the wood yes, and started the burn. One of the distinctive elements of a dragon kiln is, is actually it's all one chamber, but they look at it in terms of zones. And because it's one chamber, that's why the heat from the bottom goes so quickly to the top and they can fire really quickly. There are other types of kilns that are also on a slope and they do have chambers. Those tend to take a lot longer because each chamber gets hot and then it passes its heat up to the next level. And so these ones, they, mm-hmm. they said they perfect it to have these fired in about 12 to 14 hours, which is incredible because most kilns of this size will take two, three days of firing to get from zero degrees up to the 1300 and then for it to cool back down. So apart from the wood that's behind the grid behind me, this whole dragon kiln is one big firing chamber. Exactly. Yes. Wow. Yes, that would be intense. So you could imagine... I mean, we're looking at it, it's about, I don't know, 25 to 30 metres. Can you imagine? We can almost stand up in here. So it's almost a human's height. It's more than a human's width. So this chamber can house tens of thousands of of utensils. If you talk about pot Mm -hmm. lids and, and, you know, soup pots and wine jugs. And one firing is an intense thing because for them... It takes so much energy and materials and cost to do one firing that it's, you know, they actually pray to the kiln gods before they fire because they need to make sure it goes well. Otherwise, they they could lose their business. 
if, if the firing goes off. So. so along up the side here where we've just walked into the Dragon Kiln is uh, some ceramic pipes that used to be used and can still be seen in country parks and other areas. A big ceramic pipes that were used for our plumbing and uh, can be seen at street level and in the country parks. And here they've been used as part of the wall and actually look quite artistic. Ahead of me, we've got lots of simple pots. What would they have been used for? So these are called sagas. And what sagas are, are ceramic pots that are for putting ceramic pieces. Um, So the bowls and all the utensils would actually be placed in these sagas before firing because this allows them to stack everything up in a uniform way all the way up to the top of the kiln. No space gets wasted. Otherwise, you could imagine if you had all kinds of odd-shaped pots, you you wouldn't be able to nicely fit all those things in. This stack is also protect the ceramic items from being stuck by wood ashes that, you know, blowing up. The wood ashes, if fall on top of the glaze, can, you know, ruin the surface. So this is a protector, not only for stacking up. So how many people would have worked in the kiln? In the kiln, they help to bring in things. So maybe four to five people help stacking up from the front to the back. There should be another door on the other side. Yeah, they might do a firing uh, three, four times a year. The whole production team, I think, around here, at its height, was maybe 15 people. But Uh, you would have different roles. So you had some people who were there just to process clay and all the mud. You'd have certain people who were here to load kilns. And certainly when they were about to fire, they would bring in temporary staff because that's when they would suddenly need more hands and more labor. Cut the woods into smaller pieces so that they can easily put it through this hose this fire hose. Uh, Oh, so they shoot more wood down? Yeah, from the side. They lay from the bottom, but then they will sometimes... The main is from that part. The main field is the big chunks of wood is on the front part. So behind that grid? Yes. And because they will monitor the whole process, when they feel some parts, the fire is not as expectedly high, they will add small chunks of wood from this hole here and fill up, heat the temperature. So that is the way they're operating. So it's almost non-stop through the firing process. They have to monitor the temperature. They check the temperature by seeing the colour of the flame. So how much, I mean, how much ceramics could you fit in here? Because four times a year doesn't seem very, very much. No, because it, it takes quite a long time to collect enough things um, to, to fill the kiln because they would also not fire it if it wasn't filled because it would be such a waste of energy in terms of labor and woodcutting and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. So, you know, we, we were doing a, a rough calculation, Louis, I think a couple of weeks ago. We said if it was just pot lids, you could talk, you'd be talking about tens of thousands of pot lids that, that you would need to fill up space like this. Mm-hmm. But of course, it wasn't only pot lids. You had, Some you know, big, those big items, the big items like the, the pipe. So, of course, occupy more space and they it's easily fill up the, the can. Depends. I think it depends their order yeah. at that time. But normally, the basic thing is they won't fire it until it's almost full. Otherwise, they will waste our fuel. That means money for them to fire one can every time. So, my memory tells me that every three months around. So, maybe it's just four to five times a year firing. They're very serious in firing mm. each kin because there's no failure can be accepted. 
<laughs> it's quite amazing being inside here, I have to say. We're, um, where is the kiln, if, uh, you know, just to get our geography where we've just driven up? Yeah, so we are in Tunmun, and we actually came up via the uh, Tunmun uh, Tunnel, uh, Tunmun Corridor Highway. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it's, it's, we're, we're only a minute off of the highway, but hidden just kind of behind the Mac, part of the Maclehos Trail, um, sitting on a slope close to, close to a disused school. And all around us already, there are residential buildings that have gone up over the past 20, 30 years and and probably mm. likely if, if we don't protect this kiln that will happen here as well. Would this have been one of the only dragon kilns in Hong Kong or would there have been lots of them at certain times? I don't know if we could say there were lots but I'm sure there was more than one because there were a number of experts and artisans that came down from this area in China called Shiwan after the war. So in the 50s and 60s a lot of these artisans and foremans and experts came down to Hong Kong and I think around Tunmun from books that I've read there were maybe a dozen kilns in this in this neighborhood and i think many of them used used dragon kilns but this really is the only one that remains it's complete and it's intact i expect around this area this dragon king is the biggest although it's not the biggest among the dragon king in china because as we mentioned shiwan they are a hundred meters long much bigger than that because every time they fire even more even more items but here is already the biggest you see it's not small this is only part of it, and this more be beyond that side. But I can already see, I mean, you're looking to preserve this kiln, and already just standing in this tunnel, or this chamber rather, at the start of this kiln, which goes right up the hill, is more than I expected. Um, so, I mean, I can really see school kids enjoying this. Well, one of the things, um, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to travel to some different places in the world where they've also preserved old kilns. So if you talk about in Asia, there is a ceramic cultural park in Shigaraki, where they've built a whole center around them, and artists gather all around, from all around the world to work there. In Japan. In Japan. Um, there, in Jingdezijin, there are areas like this in um, Taiwan, in Yinge, and also there's a, a Junan Yao. It's a snake kiln, which actually is very similar to a dragon kiln. They've done a lot of work to preserve these. And in all these big city centers, uh, or, or in all these places, they've managed to preserve these kilns and create very interesting facilities around them that brings this history back to life. Even in the UK, if you go to Stoke-on-Trent, if you go to the potteries, you go to Middleport Pottery, you can also go into their bottle kilns and you see all these different shaped but exact same function sagas that people used to carry in with all the pieces inside. So what we are able to imagine is not something that we just thought up, is, is that we've seen around the world these these kilns being preserved, interest being generated around it, and actually our generation learning back about what used to exist in in this kind of industrial past and people becoming reconnected with it. And I think what's one of the things that's special about this dragon kiln is, and Louis used used this kiln for almost 10 years, is Mm -hmm. besides functional day-to-day wear, he also made a lot of Sherwan-style figurines. And he brought those in and fired here. And so this place was really a center for all kinds of study and expertise of ceramics of all different types. Yes. This skin, as we mentioned earlier, originated from Xiuan in, in southern China. And even now, Xiuan, they got two baker kings, very well preserved and used to fire every other year to regenerate the, the way what people are doing in the old days. And they already uh, change it into a cultural center that uh, many people can go there and learn and enjoy how clay can be transformed into something. 
that you can use daily, or you can use for fun, or even you can use for decoration. So it's been an ongoing activities up there. Luckily, we also have this kind of kin, and very completely intact here. So see what we can do. Absolutely. I mean, I'm 171 centimeters. Last time I got measured at the doctor's, I might be shrinking as I get older, but um, <laughs> I can nearly, nearly stand at the top without. Uh, I'm slightly hunching my head, not much. And uh, but inside here, and I'll be interested after this interview to actually hear the sound in the studio because I bet you this would be a, <laughs> this would be a good place Some to do radio. Here. No, I don't think so. I yes. think quite the opposite. I think it's probably a good place without too much ambient sound. But on the side here, we've got. I mean, we've got. Clear over our heads but we've actually got bits of glaze yeah this is glaze this sparkling nice yeah the lovely shiny bricks yeah. yes there's the um, history of this king <laughs> is the glaze all covering the, the two sides of the king interior interior walls. intentionally no no that's just it's, been part of the process yes over the years yes over the years when they fire things some particles ingredients with all vapor get up and start on on the wall and after so many years, it become a thick, you know, layer of glass yes. here. It's sparkling, you see. It's lovely. So funny. Yes. So it's good for young kids to come and see. Now, this uh, kiln was actually shut in 1982, or not shut, but it stopped operating. Um, but it's in a very good condition. So the glaze that we see on the inside, besides what Louis said, was... Over the years, as that glaze coats the inside, it's actually what strengthens it from the inside. So when they build this kiln, all of these brick bricks that we see were raw, were just mud. And as they've built it and they fire it, it cooks from the inside. And so it's actually this glass coating of this glaze that really does the final thing to make the whole thing very strong. The main structure here, it strikes me as very safe and, and very sturdy. Very sturdy, because actually the, the reason that production stopped was only because production was beginning to move northwards towards the mainland. And so it was really economic more than anything, but the kiln itself was functioning. And, and the last firing was actually in 1985, May 26. And that was actually a demonstration firing where the then governor... Governor Yud, and the first uh, executive secretary of the uh, Antiques and Monument Office, the AMO, uh, Dr. Solomon Bard, they were very interested in this kiln, and they came to actually ask for a trial firing to see how it actually works. And that was the very last one, and press was here, there were newspaper articles written, and from there, the big push was to turn this into a living museum, kind of what we're doing now is actually trying to pick up where that left off because through about 1982 till 1987, the government got very involved. They purchased this land back from the Lung family and they had the architectural services department at that time start drawing up plans for this living museum. And some of these plans are absolutely gorgeous blueprints. And if you look at the real site and then you look at those blueprints, you, your mind is immediately like, OK, I can see how this how this would happen. When, when was the kiln built? We don't know the exact year, but it was built around the 1940s. There was actually a Chinese man who lived in San Francisco, moved back to Hong Kong. His name was Si Tou No Tou. And he wanted to use his funds to build a kiln and make really high quality pieces that he could export back to the U.S. But he encountered a lot of difficulties. He, he realized that it wasn't actually that easy to just 
build a kiln and fire high-quality stuff. He started hiring in experts like the foreman here. His name is Lung Sam. Now, Lung Sam is a really important character in Hong Kong ceramics because he ran this kiln. He was the one who really drove all the technology and how to improve it over time. And he operated this kiln um, from the 50s onwards. And actually, the, the San Francisco businessman eventually left this business and sold it to the workers here. And so actually, this was actually then renamed to be called the Workers' Kiln, Gong Hap Tou Yu. Certainly, Lang Sam was seen as the leader of that group. And he was the foreman with all of that technical knowledge. He was the one who was teaching everybody how to mix glazes. And he was the one who fired this kiln through the 50s all the way until the last firing in the 80s. They eventually abandoned the idea of making really kind of ex pieces for export and realized that actually it made a lot more sense to make daily utensils and functional wear that would be used in Hong Kong itself. In terms of those export pieces initially, would there have been sort of takeoffs of Ming Dynasty vases, that sort of thing? Is that what we're talking, sort of pieces to ornate pieces for the home? We, we don't really know, although I think it's, you know, uh, we would conject that most likely if you're making high-quality pieces for export, you are likely some at least some of those pieces are kind of um, uh, imitation pieces mm. that would that would be sold to to collectors abroad um, we don't have any of those pieces left we we have very little information from that period because it seemed to us that they gave up on that approach very quickly they realized they could they simply didn't have the technology and they were losing money and to run a kiln costs a lot and I think they very quickly moved towards saying well let, let's make stoneware pieces like pot lids and clay pipes for drains and and wine bottles because not so romantic. Not though. so romantic. But actually, for me, it's super romantic because now those are things I can actually understand and yeah. connect with. Because yeah. even, you know, I'm, I'm not that young. So I even remember as a kid having those soup pots and those clay pots at home that we used all the time. And most likely they came from these kilns all around Tuen Mun. These were the things that made up a part of our material life every day as a Hong Konger, whether it's in the 50s, 60s, 70s or 80s. So have you made any soup pots in your time? Wow, um, I barely make soup. <laughs> but, you know, um, my mom would like me to make more soup, and, and she does. She used to have these great soup pots. So, you know, the, the soup pots we're talking about are these kind of tallish ones. Yes. One little arm is a handle, one little has a spout. When we were children, those soup pots were well taken care of. If there was a crack or something in it, they would use wires to tie them back together because you don't just throw things out. You would reuse them until you really you couldn't use them anymore. But what happened a lot were these soup pot lids that would get destroyed much more easily. So, you know, somebody might drop their soup pot lid. And so what, what we learned was actually they used to make tons of soup pot lids much more so than the soup pots in this kiln, so that they would be sold as replacement lids that people could go to the market and buy if, if they've dropped the one they have at home. Now, Lung Sam was the foreman here, mm. and his son is still very active with the kiln and would like to see it preserved. Absolutely. So Lung Sam had three sons. Lung Pak Chun is his youngest, and he's still living close to the kiln here. And actually, for the last since the 80s, since that last firing. He's what we've been calling the, the guardian of the kiln because by living close by, he does a very modest business selling clay, actually, to the ceramics community in Hong Kong. But what he does is he keeps an eye on, on this kiln. So in the 1990s, there was once a big typhoon and trees were, were actually beginning to fall and some of them on the kiln. So it was Lung Sam who actually made a call to the government and say, the, the kiln's going to go if you don't come and protect it. And it was at that point that the government came and built this corrugated roof that covers the whole kiln to this day. The kiln was closed in 1982 and Lung Sam sold the land to the government. 
But in 1985, the then Executive Director of the Antiquities and Monuments Office, Dr Solomon Bard, asked to see the kiln fired. The site was also visited by then-Governor Edward Ude. Here, Lung Pak Chun, Lung Sam Sun, explains to me about the final firing of the kiln when he was 31. I'm Mr Lung, uh, Lung Pak Chun. So you're the third son of Lung Sam. Because okay. I have two elder brothers. I have been working here maybe more than 60 years. <laughs> I'm an old man now. <laughs> Last time when I fired five, it was 31, but now it's 64. I, I remember some time ago there's a, a, a Beatles called We Are 64, but now I'm 64. <laughs> anyway, uh, at that time, it's 1985, Dr. Bird said that, okay, the kill is a valuable asset, but I don't know whether it's, it can be fired. They had to show to the people, including the government officials, that uh, it's workable. Then it started to fire, but I, I told him that, okay, now my business is closed. Because already in 1982, the land belonged to the government and the business is, is closed. And there is nothing I can do about it. I have, I have no workers. I have no clay and no wood. And I guess some, some wood, but not sufficient. But you have a kiln. I have a kiln. I have the knowledge, but I don't have anything. Then he said, that, OK, I, I can buy some new wood for that. But there's no new pots. What happened? It simply put in the empty suckers. That means the container of the pot. And uh, we got a friend in the Hong Kong College of Education. Uh, they got some pots coming in. And of course, when they come in, they have some helping hands come also coming in. Then uh, we, we prepared the kill for the firing. They had some pots that needed firing. They find that it's the only uh, opportunity they can yeah. fire in a wood-fired ah, kill. <laughs> right, yes. So it's good for them in a wood-fired kiln, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and therefore, they, come, they, come, they, they take along, um, and, and they can say that it's uh, more than 1,000 dead. So they had 1,000 pots? Uh, totally. And then, on the day of filing, Dr. Bach and other officials come along with the television and table uh, newspaper. Anyway, it's a very special experience. But tell me, you say you're there for this event, but had you worked with your father before on the kiln? Actually. D- did you grow up here? Or? I grew up here. I born here. And... I remember when I was very young, my mother took him to the cool for bathing because uh, it's hot there. Because in the winter, the, the winter is very cold and and I, I was very small and then I can cut the cold and then, okay, go there and then you wash it. Did you start immediately working in your father's business when you were then a teenager? Actually, when I studied in the primary school, I, I have to go come back to work of the... Minor job, for, for example, uh, glazing the pot, something like that. Glazing the pots. Tell me about what you did. So, with a brush? No, no, no. We, we got a, a, a pot of glaze, and then we got a lot of small pots over there, and then we can glaze one, go on, go on, go on, and the, the pot keep coming, and you can never finish your work. So you dip it in the glaze, or you, uh-huh. you paint it? or uh, We just dip it. Dip it. So you okay. had big gloves on? or? Uh, no, no. We are very skilled worker, after all because we do it many, many times. After you do it, do something very repeatedly, many, many times, you become skilled workers. Yes. <laughs> so as a kid, you'd go to school and then you would help with glazing pots after you came home? Uh, yeah, yeah, sometimes because uh, actually this business is a very poor business. Yeah. I remember when I studied in the secondary school, my 
School fee is $26. And I remember once a while, my father said, I don't have the money to pay the fee and got somebody else to lend the, lend the money. <laughs> Therefore, you can see how the economic condition of, of, of our family is not, not too good. I school, I went to a Chinese University. I graduated in 1979. I graduated as an economics uh, graduate. When I was young, my grandmother told me that don't do the pottery. It's a poor business. Uh, it's very difficult. It's uh, very tiring and it's not very comfortable to work with the pottery. And I believe that. And then I started very hard to get into the university. You know, at that time, getting into university is uh, not too easy. I remember uh, only 2,000 uh, people get into university at the time. Uh, one in Hong Kong U and one in Chinese University. And that's all. Therefore, uh, when I come up, I think I may have something else to do. But after all, <laughs> I turn around and and doing poetry up to now. Why? Very simple. I like it. Now you say you did poetry because you like it. What do you like about it? Bit the clay or the, the result? You or can the... see, it's very fascinating. You got some mud, very dirty muds, and then you fire it. It becomes very, very beautiful glazes. It's amazing. And it keeps on changing all the time uh, when you change the recipes. When you're working with the clay and glaze, of course, you, you will face a lot of problems. The glaze may be shiny, but I find that maybe a little matte is better. Sometimes you want to have the crackles. I sometimes don't want to have the crackles. And the crackle may be too much or maybe too small. Uh, the color may be too deep or too Something like that. You, are, you got a lot of options and something you want to pursue. Of course, uh, falling apart is not a difficult, uh, not too difficult for us. We can easily fall, fall in five minutes, no problem. But, but the glazes, uh, we have a lot of change, a lot of options, and a lot of imagination. And you are following the imagination and, and you keep on going and you can never find a termination. As well as practical kitchen items such as soup pot lids and utensils, there are also still some old pots at the kiln that were used for sport and entertainment. So they used to fight with crickets? Yeah, that apparently is the entertainment of the past days. I guess that's before the TVs and the, and the, and the movies. It's a hobby. There are people catching crickets and choosing some big one, and they used to fight. You know, so they gamble? On, uh, yes, honestly, they gamble. <laughs> Just like some in somewhere fighting with cocks. Yes. You know, roaster? Yes. Fighting? So that uh, would they be. They use cricket. So that would be ahead of the jockey club. <laughs> yeah, sure. Big, big money. Yeah. But how did you tell the difference? Well, I know, think people the know that they were <laughs> different shape, different color. As far as I remember, when I was small, my father told me that, ah, you see, this one having white color legs, this one having brown color legs, this one got a red head, big head, the head bigger. That means the jaw is bigger. And did they, did they kill one another bigger. or did they just fight? What? I have Sorry? no idea. Do they, kill, do, they kill, do they fight to the oh, death? No. no, no. They just, once, uh, once uh, wherever the, the, the cricket feel uh, they can't fight, they will run. They will run. So they will separate it. They won't fight to the, to, to the death. 
Oh, that's interesting. And does it still go on today? I think in China, some yeah. Yeah. in the old old city, but not in Hong Kong, not anymore. No, I don't think so, so that's a tradition in itself. It's, yeah, I mean, in, it's, for me, it's almost folklore. I remember in Hong Kong, you can buy cricket in the bird market, yeah. bird market, but now no more. This one for the cricket because it can cause ground so that they can. This one is not because the the, the glaze inside. Oh, uh, they can they cannot stand firm on this one. But <laughs> so they can they better grip. Yeah, they slip on the glaze. So yeah, no, with no glaze. No. Ah. I, I remember when I learned that they some with glaze, but those people will use a kind of uh, uh, soil uh-huh. or clay. Put, put it, it on. Put one layer here so that the cricket can actually Stop. not slippy for them. <laughs> But they, actually actually run. They, 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 they they especially make some without 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 grace, so that is so that they, they they can stand firm. That's a piece of history it's there. Antique, yeah, already antique. So let's see what happens and whether the kiln can be saved as a living museum. My thanks to Lung Pak Chen, Liz Lau, and Louis Lowe. The Hong Kong Dragon Kiln Concern Group also has a Facebook page. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>